Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you uh, could open your Bibles, please, to the book of Romans. As we continue to work our way through the greatest letter ever written. We're in Romans chapter 8, working our way through the greatest chapter of the Bible. (laughs) Greatest chapter in the greatest letter in the greatest book, Romans 8. We're only going to uh, consider two verses here this morning because in these two verses the subject of prayer comes up and you might have picked up that's been kind of the theme of our service today and I didn't want to just rush by. Uh, This subject of prayer, it seems like it's been a little while since that's been addressed from the pulpit. I know Pastor Brian did a Sunday school class on that a while ago, but um, we're just going to park here in these two verses, 26 and 27, and consider what I'm calling here this morning the problem of prayer. I think for a lot of us, prayer maybe seems more like a problem than a privilege. Um, Prayer is hard. Prayer is a challenge. I'm guessing if you did a survey of the typical Christian congregation and totaled up the minutes that your typical Christian spends in a given week surfing the web and playing games on their smartphone and watching TV, get that number over here, and then get the number of minutes spent in prayer over here, I wonder what we would find out. I'm guessing the uh, results would be somewhat discouraging and startling. It's hard to pray. I struggle with it. I love reading the Bible, but it's hard for me to pray. It's hard for me to set aside that time. And I'm guessing there's a lot of reasons for this, and your reasons might be different than mine, but... I know one reason is what I've already mentioned. It just seems like we live in a culture that is so filled with distractions. C.S. Lewis, back in the 50s, I think, called our culture the kingdom of noise. I wonder what he would think of our culture today. It's just so hard to escape devices calling for our attention, smartphones, laptops, etc. It's a noisy, distracting world. That makes it hard to pray. I think it's also hard to pray because of a sense that we all have that we need to be productive. We don't feel like we're doing anybody much good unless we can cross some things off of our to-do list. And when you go into your room to pray, it kind of feels like you're doing nothing, doesn't it? I'm not getting anything done. There are so many more useful ways I could be using my time. And that sometimes pulls us away from prayer. There's also um, an idea of pragmatism in our culture as well, and that's the idea that we should only spend our time doing those things that work. Sometimes I hear people say that. Prayer works, they say, and, you know, maybe in some cases that's true, but that phrase always makes me a little nervous because I think all of us can identify with the fact that sometimes prayer doesn't seem to work. The things we're praying for don't happen. The things we ask for aren't given. And if we're pragmatists and we only do that which works, we'll give up on prayer if we don't get immediate results. Another reason, last reason that 
prayer might be a problem is just the secular society in which we live. We live in a culture that is constantly telling us that the only thing that really exists is what we can see and touch in front of us. There's an anti-supernaturalism in our culture. There's this tendency to suggest that really faith is something that you hold in private and actually it's just your own kind of private silly superstition. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. But when's the last time you saw a Hollywood movie, for instance, that really depicted people praying? Now, I know about The War Room. I haven't seen that movie, and I understand that that movie does that, but you get my point. Typically, you don't see prayer warriors in Hollywood movies. It's not presented to us in our culture as something to be valued and pursued. So prayer becomes a problem for us, and I think we can all identify with that. I'm encouraged by this passage here in Romans 8, 26 and 27, because in this passage, Paul gives us some great encouragement to pray. And I tried to apply this sermon by praying about it, and my prayer for you guys is that you leave here today with an increased desire, fervency, and interest in being people of prayer. So let's read this passage, Romans 8, 26-27. Please stand out of reverence for God's Word. Picking up where we left off last week, Romans 8, 26, Paul says, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Lord, would you please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word as it is preached now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the first thing that I want to consider as we look at the problem of prayer is something that's mentioned at the very beginning of this passage, and that is our weakness in prayer. I've mentioned a number of different causes for the problem of prayer. Um, Another reason why prayer is a problem is because of our weakness, and you see that right there in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, one bit of encouragement I take from this is that pronoun there, our The Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. By using that word our, he's not saying your weakness, he's saying our weakness. He seems to be including himself among the people who find prayer to be difficult. The Apostle Paul struggled with prayer. This is a common thing in our weakness, and we see examples of this Elsewhere in Scripture, probably the best example is in Matthew 26. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Where here is Jesus contemplating what he's about to endure, going to the cross to lay down his life for sinners and take upon himself the wrath of God. It's a sorrowful, heavy thing for him. And he tells his disciples, would you please pray for me? And then he goes away and prays himself and kneels down and cries out to his father, And when he comes back to his disciples, he finds that they're asleep. And so he asks them again, will you please pray for me at this time? And Jesus goes away and he prays on his own and comes back. And again, they're asleep. Not once, not twice, uh, not once, but twice. And in the passage, we read the reason. Their eyes were heavy, it says. They, They just, they got sleepy. 
I mean, how many of you can identify with that? You go to pray, you've been busy, you haven't gotten much sleep, and as soon as you close your eyes to pray, you find yourself dozing off. That's part of our weakness. That's part of what Paul is talking about here. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. I, I don't think what Paul is in, um, intending to do here is make us feel guilty because we're weak. I don't think he's talking about a sin problem here. I think he's talking about just the frailty of being human. We just only have so much energy. We're finite creatures, and we get tired. And in particular, the kind of weakness that Paul has in mind here is not so much physical weakness, but he goes on and he says, for we do not know what to pray. So this must be related to our weakness. That is, part of what it is to be weak is to have a limited amount of knowledge and wisdom so that there are times when we come to the Lord to pray and we simply don't know what to say. We're perplexed. We're overwhelmed. We're bewildered by the challenges that face us. It just seems so beyond our comprehension, and we don't know what to say. Sometimes you've found that to happen. You're with somebody, and they ask you to pray for you, and their situation is overwhelming, and you're kind of nervous because you, you just you don't really know what to say. How do you pray for this? I mean, there are times when I've done that, and, and I've had this kind of panicky feel inside as I'm about ready to pray for somebody because I, I don't know what to say. But, but here's what I've found sometimes, is that when I just enter into prayer, the words start to come. The ideas start to come. That they weren't there before, but when I enter into prayer, they start to come. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. I take that to be the work of the Holy Spirit in my life as I'm seeking to pray for people. This will happen often when I pray in private. Um, I'll start to pray. I think I don't have much to pray for. And then as I pray, I find that I have more to pray for than I thought I had to pray for. And prayer goes a little longer than I thought. I think that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what to pray, but the Spirit helped. This can come in more serious situations too, you know, as an example of the weightiness of this passage, because remember in verses 18 through 25, Paul's been talking about suffering, the sufferings of this present time that are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. So Paul has in mind suffering. You know, imagine uh, somebody being imprisoned for their faith. They've been preaching the gospel or going to church, and now they're in jail. How do you pray? How do you pray if you've been in prison for your faith? Do you ask God, please free me, let me out of here? Do you pray, oh God, give me perseverance, patience to wait until I get out of here? Do you pray, oh Lord, open my mouth so I can declare the gospel to my um, captives? Do you pray, Lord, prepare me to die in this place? What do you pray? Some of you might be in that situation right now. In your weakness, you just don't know where to begin. The good news here is that Paul is presenting to us weakness as, as an opening, as a channel to something really great. It's like weakness in this sense ends up being an advantage for those 
who will pray. And, and I think that's so significant to notice in this text that the, that the work of the Spirit that is being offered here is something that is offered to us when we pray. It's not a promise made to people who are not praying. There's lots of work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives apart from prayer. I'm not saying that the Spirit's never present if you're not praying, but the promises made here are only things that happen when you pray. You're not going to experience these. You're not going to enjoy these blessings if you don't pray. And it's the weakness that we experience that ends up drawing us to prayer. This is the thing that can lead you to experience the blessings that are being promised here. Because here's the way we'll often get mixed up. We kind of think to ourselves, you know, if I'm not a strong Christian, if I don't have everything together, if I can't present myself to God with my life all fixed up, maybe he won't hear me. And sometimes our weakness ends up being a disincentive for us to pray. But it's exactly the opposite. When you go to God in prayer, what he wants is not your strength, not a list of your moral resume, not your skills and your abilities, not a history of how wonderful of a person you are. What he wants is your helplessness. Bring your helplessness to God in prayer, and he will hear and he will help. There's a great book by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. He gives a couple of examples of this. He says, you know, for instance, we often think that if I'm going to pray more, if I'm going to um, engage in a more continuous, ongoing habit of prayer, what I need is more self-discipline. But what Paul Miller says is, no, what you need is more poverty of spirit. If you want to get into the habit of praying, what you need is a new acquaintance with your weakness, with your helplessness. He says this in the book, the criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come to him overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Very often we look at people that we see as strong, mature Christians, and we think the reason that they pray so much is because they're such strong Christians, when it's exactly the opposite. The reason they pray so much is because they know how weak they are. That's what leads them to pray, and that's what ends up making them strong, yes, but it's not their strength that leads them to pray, it's their weakness. Edith Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's wife, was once asked, who is the greatest Christian woman <clears throat> alive today? And she said, we don't know her name, she's probably dying of cancer in a hospital in India. What did she mean by that? What she meant is that the person in the greatest state of weakness is the person more likely to be calling out to God, to be crying to him for mercy. And that is the person who is closest to God. Friends, th this I hope will bring encouragement to you. You know, you, you might be a person who was not brought up in a Christian home. You might be a person who has a very sordid, shameful past. You might be a person who doesn't have a brain that can remember scripture so well. You might not be a bold evangelist sharing the gospel with everyone you meet. You might not be a charismatic personality. You might not be eminently gifted 
you might be all too aware of your weakness and the messiness of your life. And yet you can be a person who walks into a room and lights it up with your godliness if you will pray. If you will be a person of prayer. If you will take your weakness to God and ask him to change you. That's the path to holiness. Not activity. Not necessarily spiritual giftedness. Not intelligence. Not wealth. Not beauty. But prayer. And so Paul begins this short passage on prayer by speaking to us about our weakness and then moving to the next promise, which is this, the Spirit's assistance in prayer. When we enter into prayer, there is a promise that the Spirit will assist us. Now, we should take note of the Trinitarian nature of this passage. I want to take you back to verses 15 to 17. Um, The Trinity really shows up here in chapter 8. And if you go back to verse 15, you'll see that Paul says that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So you see that? There's a mention of God the Father, that this is the blessing that every Christian has, that the gospel And what Jesus has done for us causes us to be adopted into the family of God so that we call out to God as our Father, that word Abba, meaning uh, Daddy or Papa. It's kind of an intimate way of referring to God to capture the closeness we have to our Father. And that is the privilege that every Christian has. And so here in verse 15, we have a mention of God the Father. But then in verse 16, we see the work of the Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. So the spirit then has a role. He comes close to us and works in our heart and gives us assurance that we really are Christians, even in spite of the messiness of our lives. We are children of God, and the spirit speaks to us in that way. But then go to verse 17, and it says, and if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So there we have a mention of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, after a mention in verse 16 of the third person of the Trinity, and a mention of the first person of the Trinity in verse 15. In verse 17, we see Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's the pattern of Jesus' life. He suffered for us. He went to the cross and died for us. He opened up a way for us to call God our Father and to have every obstacle removed from us as we approach him in the throne room of grace. And all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have a very distinct and special role in the way we relate to him in prayer. And so you see the Trinity there in verses 15 to 17. Now if you move ahead to verse 26 and 27 again where we're at, we see that Paul picks up again on the role of the Holy Spirit. And he's telling us here that the Spirit has a special place for those who will pray. Again, this is a promise to those who pray. It's not a promise to those who are not praying. Spirit has a lot to offer you outside of prayer, but what this is talking about is the offer of the Holy Spirit when you pray. And here's what we learn. What does the Spirit do? How does the Spirit assist? 
The Spirit, at the end of verse 26, second half of verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is what the Spirit does. This is how he assists. He, he intercedes. What does that word mean? Intercede. It means to plead a case for another. Just that simple. Someone who intercedes is pleading your case. He's standing in between you and another person. It's just kind of like a defense attorney. If you're convicted or charged of a crime, you have a defense attorney. And that attorney is supposed to plead your case to the judge, pleading your innocence, pleading for a not guilty verdict, pleading on your behalf, pleading for your good. That's what an intercessor does. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's his work for us who pray. While we're praying, the Spirit prays for us. That's what this is telling us. He, he, he's a person. The Spirit is not just this kind of inanimate power or force in the universe. The Spirit is a person. The Spirit prays. The Spirit is alive. The Spirit is active. And He prays for you. But He prays for you when you pray. There's a temptation to think, well, if the Spirit intercedes for me, I guess it's not that important. He's kind of always praying for me. But what this is telling us is that the Spirit intercedes when you pray. Now, there's an example of that here in Luke chapter 22. Now, this is talking about Jesus, and this is before Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, but I think the principle applies in terms of this concept of intercession. Here's Jesus. He's speaking to Peter. Peter is also called Simon, Simon Peter, same person. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is one of the most encouraging, inspiring, comforting things in the Bible to know, that, that we have an intercessor on our behalf. We have actually two intercessors on our behalf. We have a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ who has laid down His life to remove all obstacles before us as we come to pray to God. And we also have the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us before the Father when we pray. And I think this Luke 22 passage is instructive because there's a very specific way that Jesus chooses to pray for Peter. He says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, if I were Peter, I'm not sure that that would have been my prayer. I mean, if Satan were sifting me like wheat, if Satan were attacking me in some particular way, I think my prayer would be, oh, God, get rid of Satan. Get him out of my life. Remove this temptation from me. That would be my prayer. And Jesus could have prayed that for Peter, but he didn't pray that. He prayed something different. He prayed that his faith would not fail. And so this is another way that the Holy Spirit works in our life. When we pray and we don't know what to say, the Spirit is there lifting the better requests to the Father on our behalf. The things we might not think to ask for in our weakness but that the Spirit pleads for us. Now, why would Jesus pray for this on Peter's behalf? You look at the end of the passage, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus had something in mind. He wanted Peter to go through that attack from Satan 
so that Peter's faith could then be sustained. And as a result of that experience, then he could go to his brothers and encourage them and say, here's what happened to me. I was being tempted by Satan, but the Lord intervened on my behalf and gave me this faith, and I stood strong by his grace. And you need to do the same thing. He was uniquely equipped to be a blessing to his brothers because of the intercession of Jesus on his behalf, praying a prayer that he didn't even think to pray. And that's the same promise that's being offered to us here. When you pray, when you pray, the Spirit intercedes in this way. Why can he do that? If you look at verse 27, look, he who searches hearts, it says, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. He searches your hearts. He knows your heart. He, he knows the weakness and the sinfulness and the confused motives in your heart. That's why he's the one peculiarly and specially equipped to intercede on your behalf. The Spirit intercedes in this very special way, and there's another way that the Spirit offers assistance. And it's at the end of verse 26, this interesting phrase, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. What does that mean? How does the Spirit intercede with groanings? How is it that the Holy Spirit can groan? You know, certainly we're not going to say that the Spirit groans in the sense that He's groaning over His own confusion or weakness or sin. The Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, is God Himself in the flesh, holy and perfect, eternal, glorious, just like the Father and the Son. This isn't a groaning that the Spirit is experiencing because of anything deficient in Him. It's got to be a groaning that comes from his identification with us. It's the Spirit identifying, empathizing, coming close to us and experiencing what we're experiencing to some degree. As we groan in our sufferings, the Spirit comes and shares that burden with us and groans and cries out with us. It's a wonderful promise here. You know, it, isn't it true that in your suffering... What you don't need is someone coming to you and explaining it all away to try to make sense of it and theologizing and lecturing and preaching to you. You don't need that. You need someone who weeps with you. Or to use a kind of a lighter example, you know, imagine you're, you're, you're carrying this, a huge heavy couch up the stairs. You're helping somebody move and you're on one end of the couch and the other person is on the other end of the couch and you're turning around this tight corner and it's heavy. And How do you feel if that person is just chattering at you the whole time? <laughs> Talking to you, asking you questions, telling you jokes. That's the most unneedful thing at that moment. What do you want to hear? You want to hear him groan. <laughs> you want to hear him groan like you're groaning. You want to share in the groaning. It's not the time for chatters, not the time for lecturing. And the Spirit knows that, and, and this is the very special promise that the Spirit is giving to us here, that He joins with us in that groaning. So here's what you have, Christian, believer in Christ. Here's what you have. You have a father who is longing to hear from you, just like any good father longs to hear from a child, like any good father 
welcomes the child up on his lap and listens to what his child says. That's the father you have. He wants you to cry out to him, Abba, Father. He wants to hear from you. And you also have a Savior who has done everything necessary, as I've been saying, to open up the way freely for you to come to God without you having to fear that he's going to strike you down or be angry at you for your sins. No, that's all been taken care of on the cross. So now you can go to him freely and without fear and in full confidence. But in addition to that, you also have this Holy Spirit who has a special capacity to groan with you in all of your sorrows and troubles and difficulties. Christian, that's what you have in God. So tell me again, what is making it hard for you to pray? Why are you slow to pray? Why am I slow to pray when I have that kind of a God? What a great promise this is, the Spirit's assistance in prayer. And how ludicrous does it make it that I have to title the, ser the, the sermon, The Problem of Prayer. What is the problem? <laughs> it's unbelief, really, isn't it? It's just unbelief. We just don't believe this stuff is really true, but the Word is telling us that it is. And it leads us to the last thing that should be an encouragement, encouragement to us to pray, and it's the great privilege, <clears throat> the great privilege of prayer. Prayer is a privilege. We don't see that word here in these two verses, but... And there are a lot of different privileges of, of prayer, of course. There's the privilege of being, call, being able to call out to the, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the most powerful force in all the universe. That's a great privilege, isn't it? To have that ability to converse with him. There's also the promise of um, asking for things in the name of Jesus, the promise from Jesus that he will do it. There's a promise of answered prayer. It's a great privilege. But there's a particular privilege at the end of verse 27 here. The second half of the verse, look what Paul says. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He intercedes for whom? For everybody? For the entire world? He intercedes for the saints. What Paul is telling us is that this is a privilege that is reserved for Christians. This is something not promised to everybody. It's promised to anybody who would come to faith in Christ, but it's not promised to those who are not Christians. It's just like the very next verse, which we'll get into next week, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We love that verse. Everybody loves that verse. It's quoted a lot. But... For whom is that verse written? Verse 28. Not for everybody. We know that for those who love God, those are the ones for whom all things work together for good. Not for those who don't love God. For those who don't love God, they cannot claim to that promise. And there's a promise here about God's intercession through His Spirit that it's for the saints. Now you might ask, well, what about the person crying out to faith, crying out in faith, crying out to be saved? I mean, certainly it's true. The Bible says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. <laughs> so if you're not a Christian, don't think, well, I guess I can't call on God because he won't hear me. No, if you're not a Christian and you want to be a Christian, call out to Jesus for forgiveness and he will forgive you and you will become a Christian. He delights to hear that prayer. 
But I'm talking about the ongoing relationship that a person has with God. This promise of intercession is only for the Christian. And as an example of that, I found this article in the New York Times Magazine a few years ago. It was written by a woman named Dana Tierney. And um, she described herself as one who was brought up in a Christian home and always had these kind of cynical, doubtful questions and couldn't bring herself to believe, calls herself an, an atheist. And she has a four-year-old son, and his name is Luke. And she has a husband who was a soldier fighting in Iraq. And in the article, she describes this occasion where they're at home and they're watching TV, and on TV comes this story of a soldier from Iraq who's at home uh, to be married, not her husband, somebody else. And um, she begins to be numb with anxiety, she says, just kind of overwhelmed with how nervous this is making her about the fact that her own husband is in Iraq. And so she's perplexed by this and disturbed by this and um, notices out of the corner of her eye that her four-year-old son has put his hands together and begun to bow his head. And she says, honey, what are you doing? Kind of shocked. And he says, I'm saying a prayer for daddy. And she begins to feel kind of ashamed a little bit because she's created this home, she says, where a child praying is somehow an unusual or odd thing. And she goes on and says this, talking about her son praying. She says, it was as if that mustard seed of faith had found its way into our son, and now he was revealing that he could move mountains. I was envious of him. Luke wasn't rattled. He was there watching this TV program as well and hearing about this soldier. He wasn't rattled because he believed that God would bring his father home safely. I was the only one stranded. What, what is she saying here? She, she's, she's capturing the fact that there is something regrettable in her life about the fact that she didn't have a God to pray to. She didn't have someone to call on to help her through this suffering, to bring her husband home, to give her peace as she waited. It was just her in the world alone. And Christian, that is not you. Do you see how much better of a place you're in? Do you see what a privilege it is to be able to call out to the creator and maker and sustainer of the universe? Do you see what a great privilege you have that not everybody has? What a privilege it is to call on this God and know that he will hear and know that the spirit will intercede and know that the father is welcoming us into his presence, knowing that the son has cleared the way forward title of the article was Coveting Luke's Faith. You can have that faith, friends. If you don't have it, if you feel like you're stranded today, you can call out to Jesus now. You can do that. We should pray for Dana Tierney. Pray that she calls out to Jesus. But I want to ask you today as we close, friends, 
What will you do this week and in the coming weeks to make prayer a priority in your life? What plan are you going to put forth to be a more prayerful person? Something that I've done for a while, I've shared this before, I have a a prayer journal. To be honest, I don't use it always. I've been away from it lately, quite frankly. But it's true. I have a prayer journal. And um, I've just divided it up by each day of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And for every day, I have a different topic. So one day, pray for Mary. Another day, I pray just for the church. Another day, I pray for my own growth and holiness. Another day, I pray for uh, friends and family. Um, and, And on it goes. That helps me to organize my prayers. It helps me when I go to prayer to not be overwhelmed with everything there is to pray for. I I kind of segment my prayers so I have a smaller amount to deal with every day. But what I've done in my prayer journal is I've just got an ongoing list there. And as new things occur to me in each of these topics, I write these things down. And so every page is full. (laughs) I got a lot of things to pray for. But that's kind of the way I think that's helpful to me. Maybe that seems too structured to you that that's a helpful thing, an idea for you to consider. Another idea is um, uh, something that uh, Pam Navarro has done lately, and I talked to Pam and asked for permission to share this with you, but Pam has what she calls a a prayer closet in her house, and it actually is a closet, and, and I've been in there, and I've seen it, and it's full of clothes, and yet it's the place where Pam goes to pray. It's just a small little room, just about the size of maybe, you know, this area right around where I'm standing. And she goes in there and shuts the door and prays. When you talk about a good way to avoid distractions, I'm assuming she doesn't take her cell phone in there, if she has a cell phone. Um, that would be a bad idea. If you're going to do a prayer closet, don't take your cell phone in there. You're going to defeat the purpose. But if you want to be warding off distractions, that, that's... A great idea. She has like a a picture hanging on the wall where she writes down the names of the people she's praying for. And when those prayers are answered, she crosses it off the list and um, has some really interesting stories to tell. Um, So, Pam, just wave your hand there in case people don't know you. That's Pam. If you want to hear more about her prayer closet, um, go see Pam. Um, And, you know, you've heard from Larry Belcher here two Sundays in a row. Uh, we need you to pray for the church. We, we've got some tight financial situations before us right now. Um, I wonder what God would do if all of us committed to pleading with God for him to provide for us. I, mean, I just like to think, what would our church be like if all of us were faithful, diligent prayer warriors? I'm sure many of you are. I'm kind of assuming, I guess, that a lot of you aren't, but I'm guessing if you're like me, again, that this is a struggle. But what would the Lord do if we gave ourselves wholeheartedly and without hesitation to pray? We have a monthly prayer meeting as well. Last Sunday of the month, uh, the last Sunday of the month, this month is Easter, so actually we don't have our prayer meeting at the end of this month. But the last Sunday of every month at 6 o'clock, we we gather together, just a small group of us. Actually, it's been kind of growing lately. We had, I don't know, 12 or 14 people there last time. And we pray for each other, and we pray for the needs of the church and the world. Friends, there is is no promise that God is going to make you wealthy. 
There is no promise that, that he's going to keep you healthy. There is no promise that you're going to be rich. There is no promise that you'll be married. There is no promise that you'll have children. There are a lot of things in the Bible that aren't promised, but one thing is very clear. God will help you if you pray. That's a clear promise. So take him up on it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us as a church a praying people. I pray that you would make me a praying pastor. And I pray, Lord, that as your people, we would experience what we've learned about here in Romans 8, the wonderful promise of an empathetic, loving Holy Spirit who groans with us and intercedes on our behalf. Show, show us that reality, God, I pray, as we, as your people, go to you in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.